Hello, welcome to Bethel Baptist Church Podcast. Today, October 3rd, 2021, Pastor Steve starts a new sermon series on the book of James with a big idea. God not only desires that we come to know Jesus as our Savior, but that God continues to conform us to the image of Jesus. We are about to walk into the book of James. And we might ask, why why James? Why now? And I think that it's an important question for us to ask. In that... Um, we don't just randomly cherry pick books that I walk through. We completed a series of messages through Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And we talked about the importance of all of the things that Jesus was communicating in there and how that related to just practical Christian living. From there, we transitioned into the book of Ephesians. And if you understand the big breakdown of Ephesians, chapters 1, 2, and 3 are really dealing with a lot of doctrinal truth. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 have a lot more to do with practical Christian living. So in Ephesians, you start out and you build the case for this is what God wants. Over here you look at, this is how God wants us to live. And we saw that. We worked through a lot of of important issues as we walked through there. You begin in in Ephesians chapter 4 with salvation or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 2, building with salvation, and then move over into chapter 4 and see how we are to be growing and changing and to always tie that back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 29, that we would continually be conformed to the image of Christ. Not like, not like Romans 12, 2, where it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? That you might know what that perfect will of God is, okay? So, he's saying, God desires to conform you to the image of his son. And what we're going to see here is that James at least in my mind, as I'm, I'm putting this together in my head, that it is the most logical step from Ephesians. It just, it just makes sense to me. And I hope that as we walk through here, it'll make sense to you. But what I want to do is to do the same thing that I always do when I begin a new series. And that is simply to do this. I'm going to put before you this morning... This question, and I want you to think about this throughout the message, throughout the series, and ask yourself how God might use this series of messages in my life. And here's the the question. What is it in the book of James, as I'm studying it, that I recognize I need to change? What is it that that we need to change? 
As we start to get into this, and we're going to do kind of an introduction to James this morning, but as we start to get into this, what is it, how is God going to use this, what way can God radically change my life, my thinking, and help conform me to the image of Christ as we walk through this book. My hope, my prayer for you is that you would begin to think that way. How is it and what is it that we can use to, to change into the image of Christ and allow the book of James to push us toward that? Okay? So as we get started this morning, the Bible tells us, and, and it dwells on two prominent themes in, across all 66 books. Here's the two themes. The way to God and the walk with God. The first theme, obviously, is directed toward the lost, those who are dead in sin, Ephesians chapter 2. It tells them how they can be saved. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, But God, in the midst of all of the darkness there, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it, it starts out in verse 4, it says, But God... And that's where the change takes place. God getting a hold of our lives. God doing the work that only he can do, bringing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. The second theme is all about being aimed at Christians. It's about explaining how to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, uh, I, everything, in everything that I do, I desire to be pleasing to God. So if that's true, then everything that we do ought to help us in that experience of, of pleasing God more. So then, standing at the head of the class in this second category, the walk with God is the book of James. So here's our big idea this morning. It's God not only desires that we come to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, but that God continues to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ. That, that, that that's what God is doing in our lives. He is working to conform us. In other words... If, if we were looking at a sculpture and you're going, to, you're going to sculpt something, someone was once asked, what, how, do you, how do you make a sculpture? Well, you knock away everything that doesn't look like your subject. So if you're going to make a sculpture of a Christian, God is going to knock away everything that doesn't look like what a Christian should look like. And so he's able to conform us to the image of Christ. When it comes to the, the subject of Christian living, i got to tell you, James is one of the saltiest books of the New Testament. Its feisty emphasis on living out your faith is laced with practicality. You won't hear a lot of mysterious stained glass theological discussions within the hollowed Halls of this inspired letter. 
It's going to look a lot more like grass-stained advice from somebody who is just doing everything they can to follow hard after Jesus. That's what James is all about. Generally speaking, James is not a great doctrinal treatise. We covered a lot of that back in Ephesians chapter 1, verses chapters 1 through 3. The name of our Lord Jesus Christ appears in the book only twice. The author never mentions the cross, the resurrection, or the Holy Spirit. But this letter wasn't written for the purpose of establishing the doctrines of the faith. It, it is in even a defense of the truth. It is simply a practical book that assumes you already know the basics of faith. And, and as I look at this book and I think about James, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, wow, we just looked at this doctrinal purity of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 and then we talked about the practicality of chapters 5 or 4, 5, and 6 and now we're going to turn and even delve in deeper as we look at the book of James. You already know the basics of the faith. Its intention now is to drive home the importance of living out those truths. In essence, the main issue that is prompted James to write this is, if you believe, if you say you believe, then why don't you act like it? If you say you believe, why don't you act like it? Before we begin our study of this book and, and we, we dive in, what I want to do is back up a little bit. And take maybe a 30,000 foot view of the book of James. To get kind of an overview of, of what we're doing, where we're headed. So we begin with James the writer. James the writer. Look at chapter 1. If you, hopefully I told you to open your books open your Bibles to the book of James, okay? So we're going to start there, obviously. And we're going to look at James 1.1. 1, 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes who are dispersed about greetings. He begins with James, the bondservant of God, literally the slave of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. But this begs the question, which James are we talking about here? There's, there's more than one. The New Testament mentions five men living in the first century who bore the same name. Now, there were probably far more than that, but there's five that the, that the Scripture deals with here. Most New Testament scholars, conservative scholars, believe and agree that it was James, the half-brother of Jesus, born and raised in the same family. Now, I could leave it at that. But I'm going to delve in a little bit deeper here and kind of give you uh, a, a, what's going on here with James. Okay? So there was a James who is uh, the father or the member of the 12 called Judas, not Iscariot. We find that in Luke chapter 6. 
There's the second James. There's a, the James who's the son of Alphaeus, who was a member of the Twelve. We find that in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. And then also we find his name mentioned again in the book of Acts. There's a, a, another James who is called James the Little, or James the Less, and I kind of take personal umbrage at, uh, at that name, you know. Uh, but that's, that's the name that, that he was given. And probably, most scholars believe that was probably an error in translation, and I'm going to say, okay, I'll buy that. He's mentioned in Mark chapter 15. There's a James who's the brother of John, one of the sons of Zebedee, a member of the Twelve. Again, find him in all three synoptic Gospels as well as the book of Acts. And finally, there is the James who is called the brother of Jesus. And although the first definite connection of James with this letter does not emerge until later on in the first half of the third century, the uh, uh, Bible scholar uh, Origen uh, is, is the one who made the connection here. And it is to him, this James, that the letter has always been traditionally ascribed to James, the brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's talk about a little bit of, of James and his history. What, what does that kind of look like? Well, for centuries, there, there was this erroneous idea that existed that, that uh, Mary and Joseph had no other children besides Jesus. But we know that that's not true according to the biblical record. Matthew chapter 13 tells us that there were several other children. And coming into his hometown, he began to teach them in their synagogue. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 54 through uh, part of 56 here. So that they became astonished and said, where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous signs? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And his sisters, are they not with us as well? If this list is given by birth order, James would have grown up being the first little brother to Jesus. He'd been growing up in the footsteps of Jesus. And I'm just simply going to say this, that growing up in the shadow of perfection could not have been easy. You think about that. Think about your older siblings. Think about, uh, you know, uh, the way that uh, um, sometimes younger siblings look up to older siblings. That couldn't have been easy. And things don't get better in adulthood. When this controversial older brother came home claiming to be the Messiah, how did James and the other family members react? Do you remember? Do you remember the gospel account? In Mark chapter 3 tells us this. It says, and then his own people heard of this and they went out to take custody of him for they were saying he has lost his senses. Let me see if I can't work with that a little bit. The living Bible, that last phrase, he has lost his senses is put in like this. He is out of his mind. Talking about Jesus. Berkeley says he is deranged. 
The Phillips New Testament says he must be mad. Do you understand? They were going to come and arrest Jesus because he had lost his senses. The deciding opinion of his family, apparently, including James, was frankly, he was a nut. John chapter 7, verse 5 says, For not even his brothers would believe in him. As far as we know, James's unbelief persisted even into the time of Jesus' death upon the cross. But here's what I found was interesting. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, it tells us that after the resurrected Lord Jesus visited James, and from that moment on, it appears in the scripture that he was a different man. In fact, he became one of the early church's most significant leaders serving the Lord until he was martyred by stoning in A.D. 62, and that's according to Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian. That's James. That's his, that's his history. That's who he was. What about his self-perspective? It's interesting to note that the introduction to uh, his book, which, by the way, was the first piece of biblical literature written in the New Testament area. Let me just pause for a second. This was the very first piece written before the Gospels, before Acts, before all the epistles. This was the first thing that was written. Okay, so just... Tuck that away in the back of your mind, and, and we can contemplate about that as we move forward. James does not identify himself as, I am the brother, I am Jesus' brother. That would have been name-dropping. That would have been calling attention to himself. And by the way, it's interesting that that's something that James condemns later on, later on in his letter as phony and empty practice. Instead, he simply identifies himself as a bondservant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to understand that, that probably the best rendering of this term for bondservant is the word slave. And I think that would help us in our understanding of, of this truth. So here's what James recognized that his real relationship to Jesus was not the physical relationship that they'd grown up in the same home, but it was spiritual, made possible by the grace of God alone. He puts no claim on being the half-brother of Jesus, just that he is the slave of God and of Jesus Christ. Let's talk about James' relationship to his, his readers as you walk through the book of James. James 1, uh, 2 identifies uh, as throughout the letter of James, identifies uh, with the word brethren. If you look in verse 2, count it all, joy my Brethren, okay, and he uses that word frequently throughout the rest of the book. 
uh, in a way that means more than my fellow Jews. He's not just saying that as, as they were part of this national family, but I think he was more specifically designated a Jewish believer of New Testament truth. James also refers to the people as being scattered or being uh, dispersed abroad in verse 1. Dispersed abroad. Meaning scattered throughout as one might scatter seed. There's reason for this. The date would have been somewhere around probably A.D. 45. Claudius was the emperor at Rome. And under his rule, the Jews had been persecuted, driven out of Rome, driven out of their homeland, which was Palestine. Jewish businesses were being boycotted. Jewish children were being mocked and thrown out of schools. Life was grim. Life was threatening. Life was unsafe. Someone has once said that persecution purifies, but constant suffering crushes. And that's exactly what was happening to many of these early Christian Jews. My dad used to, used to use a phrase and he'd say, I'm doing well, but my knees are buckling. I'm holding up, but my knees are buckling. And I just want to say that, that in the midst of this suffering, in the midst of all of these trials, in the midst of all of this that was going on around them, their, their knees are buckling under the pressure of constant persecution. With their words, they, they profess to be to what they believed, but with their action, that yeah, was a different story. They denied ever having known the Savior. They, in their hearts, they believed, but in their actions, they were just trying to do what they could to get along. To go along. In this scourge of suffering and defection, James scatters a seed of his own, a powerful letter of exhortation and encouragement, not necessarily about deep theological doctrines and precepts, but about maintaining a faithful practice of Christian faith. Doing the word, as we're going to see, is an important part of what we're going to talk about. Let me talk about James, the book as a whole, okay? Again, we're doing this, this 30,000 foot view flyover of James. So we turn our attention from the author to the book itself. And what we want to see is a glimpse of its unique features and a brief overview. So let's talk about the main theme. The main theme, the heart of James' message can be summed up in these words, real faith produces genuine works. Real faith produces genuine works. If you say you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, then that should be reflected in how you live your life. It ought to be a blatant testimony of what God is doing in your life. 
You've placed your faith and trust in Jesus. And James would put it this way, then act like it. Let your life betray the fact that you know Jesus as Savior and you are committed to Jesus as Savior. That's what he's after here. It should be reflected by your life. Your relationship. That there should never be anything that you would consider to be an undercover Christian. Now, when I first got saved, I thought, I really thought and believed that I was the only guy on the campus that knew the Lord as Savior. I mean, I, I have such a, a, such a teeny tiny view of God at that point that I, I didn't even know that there was anybody else that would possibly be a Christian. And so I would, I would go in, in my room at night on the top bunk of my bed, and I had a, I had a Catholic Bible that, that my uncle gave me, and, and I would take my pen light, and I would turn, I'd pull the covers up over my head, and I would read my Bible. That's not what I'm talking about. An undercover Christian is one who has the idea that says, well, here's all that I need to do. I just need to live my life out for Jesus, and people will recognize that and immediately come to me and say, what is the difference in your life? That I don't ever need to talk to anybody about Jesus because it'll just happen naturally. Do you know how effective that is? Try zero. We're called to talk to others about Christ. So the heart of James' message here can be summed up in these words. Real faith produces genuine works of faith. Let's look at the main section here. We talked about the main theme, now the main section. The primary section of this book is found in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 20. The book's major thrust is contained in this passage. Notice what it says. You, you should be in chapter 2. Look at verse 14. What use is it, my brethren, if a man says he has faith but no works? Can that faith save him? Anybody, listen to me carefully, anybody can claim to be a Christian. But James points out, that a person who has genuine, genuinely found faith will also have a desire to walk in it, and it illustrates this principle with a down-to-earth example. Look at verse 15. If a brother or sister is without clothing and need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for the body, what use is that? So James here is not advocating that a salvation that is based on works as some have accused him, but rather, this is what he is advocating. Salvation must be accompanied by works. 
Faith is the root. Works are the fruit. So the roots go down into the, to the ground, and that's where the stability comes from. And then the, the works are the fruit. Without fruit, words of faith are empty and lifeless. Look at verse 17 and verse 20 here. Even so, faith, if it has no works, verse 17 is dead, being by itself, jump to verse 20 now, are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? That's the overview. That's the main passage if you will. And we're going to walk through that. We're going to develop that. And we're going to see that God is going to use that in a mighty way in our lives. Let me catch the overview. And then we're going to wrap things up here pretty quick. But the following outline gives four sections. And it gives us an idea of the progression of James. Okay? So, first of all, James chapter 1. In this section, James asserts that when real faith is stretched, it doesn't break, but rather it produces stability. To prove his point, James uses three examples. And we're going we're gonna to walk through all of this later as we go through here. But he uses three examples. In verses 2 to 12, he shows us that life's trials cause real faith to come to the forefront. The real faith is caused to emerge here. In verses 13 to 16, he says that lusts, temptations, cause a work of resistance. And then again, in verses 17 to 27, he explains that when a true believer is faced with the Scripture, the response is to change according to what the Scripture teaches. And again, we're going to develop all of that. We're going to move through that. We're going to take that slowly, but that's kind of the bird's eye view of James chapter 1. James chapter 2. The consistent theme throughout this section of James chapter 2 is that real faith is pressed and it does not fail. Real faith is pressed, but it doesn't fail. Instead, it shows genuine love. We're going to talk about prejudice, indifference, dry intellectual belief. All of these things battle against real faith. We're going to, we're going to walk through all of that. James chapters 3 and 4. Here, James affirms that when genuine faith is expressed, it is with control and humility not unbridled arrogance. He goes on to express that our faith in three different ways. He said we express our faith verbally, we express our faith emotionally, and we express our faith by an act of the will or volitionally. James chapter 5. The final emphasis in this practicum on Christian living is that when real faith is distressed, it doesn't panic. We live in a world 
where we are bombarded with pressure on us on a lot of different levels, and we are tempted to what? Panic. What are we going to do? Oh, my word. This is going on. That's going on. I don't know what to do. It's, it's crazy. The, the world is, is coming apart at the seams. I don't know what we're going to do. I know one thing, that God is in control. And nothing happens outside of his purview. And all God's people said, okay. I hope some of you are at least nodding with me. We understand that. So what we're looking at here is, is though faith is distressed, though faith is stretched, though it's, it's pressured, it doesn't panic. There are so many things in our day and age that are just going sideways that we feel like sometimes the whole thing is coming apart at the seams. And yet we know that God has not taken his hands off. He is in complete control. James illustrates this message with everyday solutions. This is, this is how practical this is. We know that we can be distressed. In James's day, they were, they were just constantly under pressure. James says, okay, here's, here's some things you need to do. In everyday situations, you need to not panic in the area of not having enough money. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Dealing with sickness. James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18. And also, dealing with a brother or sister who isn't walking with the Lord. James 5, 19 through 20. James is all about practicality. Living life that honors God. Is that what we truly desire? Let's just wrap this up and talk about our relationship to this message. Those first century Christians were struggling. They were having a, a, a terrible time of it. And they needed some straight talk from someone who could help them cope, somebody that could help them handle the pressures that they were dealing with. And let me just say this, today, many of us need that same kind of help. Those of us whose vocabularies are bulging with all the right words, but whose lifestyle are shriveled for lack of spiritual substance. We've got all the right words to say. Got all the, we know all the right cliches. We know all the right buzzwords. We know all of those things. But our lives are anemic, withering away, shriveled up, <clears throat> excuse me, for lack of spiritual substance. Martin Luther called the book of James a right strawy epistle. What in the world does that mean? One commentator notes that it is only strawy to the degree that it is sticky. There are enough needles in this haystack to prick the conscience of every dull, defeated, and degenerate Christian in the world. What we ought to call it is a right-stirring epistle designed to exhort and encourage, to challenge and convict, to rebuke and revive, 
to describe practical holiness and drive believers toward the goal of faith that works. James is severely ethical and refreshingly practical. One of the goals of any study of Scripture is to seek out the author's intended meaning. So when we look at the Scripture, and we're looking for the author's intended meaning, yes, we want to know, what did James say? But I submit to you this morning, that far more important is what is God communicating to us through the book of James. Authorial intent is the big theological words that we use to say what is the meaning from God's perspective. One of the best ways to prepare ourselves to understand James' words is to take the time to read through this letter more than once. So here's your little bit of homework this morning, okay? Find some interrupted time to read through this very short epistle in one setting. And what I want you to do is, is to read through that in one setting and then to do it a couple or three times. I want you to saturate yourselves with its contents using a variety of Bible versions. Everybody's got their favorite. Okay? I, I love the New American Standard. I do. And, and other people, yeah, you might love the King James, or you might love the ESV, or you might love the Christian Standard Version. Whatever it is, will you just step outside of your, your box and read some other versions? It's not bad. That's a good thing. It'll help you to, and I'll step over here just so I don't get hit by lightning, but I would encourage you to read probably one that is not a word for word, but maybe a phrase by phrase translation, or even maybe a paraphrase. I said that out loud, did I? Oh, okay. We're okay. Allow God to use his word to help us to grow and change and be more like Jesus. It'll be a tremendous help leading you closer to the heartbeat of what James is saying to first century readers and what God would have, what God would say to us today. Can we do that? Maybe find some time to, to read through the book of James. When we get back together next Sunday, we're, we're going to dig in and see what James has for us. Father, we thank you this morning for the, the, the many blessings that you, you give us and the opportunity to uh, just be a part of, of what you are trying to accomplish in our lives. We pray, Father, and ask that you would just continue to work, continue to draw us to yourself, continue to use your word in a mighty, powerful way that, God, we might stand in awe of who you are and realize that you are doing a great work in our lives. 
Father, this morning, we just ask that as we transition to this communion time, that, that you would be honored and glorified in everything that we say and do. We ask this now in Jesus' name.